to be seated. Good evening to you. Matthew chapter 24 on our journey through the Scriptures. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you flag them, they'll put a Bible in your hand. And uh, please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you tonight. Matthew chapter 24 is one of Jesus' longest teachings, one of his three longest teachings, at least is recorded for us in, in the Scriptures. And this particular teaching of Jesus is known as the Olivet Discourse, and it is uh, named that because, as you notice in verse 3, he taught it on the Mount of Olives. And so it is, uh, it is titled based upon where he delivered the sermon. Uh, notice in verse 1, the, the, uh, Jesus, it says, Then Jesus went out, and he departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And that word then is a very important word because what it does is it ties uh, chapter 24 to chapter 23. And I don't think anyone will really fully understand or appreciate chapter 24 without understanding the link that it has to uh, chapter 23, because that's the context. You remember last time we were together that chapter 23 closes with Jesus' lament over Jerusalem because of their uh, failure by and large to recognize Him as their promised Messiah, and the result of that was it kept Him from being uh, the protector of them, the protector that He desired to be to them. And uh, then Jesus declared in verse 38, the consequences of failing to recognize Him as their Messiah. See, He said, your house, speaking of the temple, is left to you uh, desolate. And Jesus then there referring to their house and the desolation of their house, He was declaring that it would be left desolate, and He was referring to the ultimate destruction of the temple in Jerusalem which occurred at the hands of the Roman armies in 70 A.D. So Jesus here prophesies the desolation or the destruction uh, of the temple. The uh, response then uh, of the disciples to this news is right there in verse 1, then Jesus went out. He departed from uh, the temple. As He's departing from that temple area of Jerusalem, His disciples came up to show Him the buildings of the temple. Now, it wasn't like Jesus wasn't familiar with the temple. He was very familiar with the temple. He'd been there all through His life and journeys to Jerusalem, and certainly a large part of His three and a half years of His public ministry was spent in the area of the temple, very familiar with the temple. But it appears what the disciples are doing there in verse 1 is that they're giving Him a chance to reconsider His earlier prophecy that He's just made, and that is that this temple is going to be left desolate. And so the prophecy they've heard Him declare sounds like 
a prophecy that's impossible that it would come to pass. So they're giving him some room to reconsider the prophecy and showing him how magnificent and with what permanence the temple was built with and in order to stand in the face of the prophecy that he had given. A little bit about the temple. It was built by Herod the Great, and it really was spectacular. It covered an area, uh, the temple area of 13 acres altogether. Much of it was built out of white limestone, and as if that wasn't enough, the limestone was then covered with marble and gold. And many of the stones that were used in its construction were as long as 40 feet long, 12 feet wide, and 20 feet tall. Josephus speaks of these dimensions of some of the stones that constituted the building of the temple. Some of these stones weighed 165 tons, and some of the stones that made up the retaining wall around the temple mount weighed uh, as much as 600 tons tons. Herod began to build, Herod the Great began to build the temple in the year 20 B.C., and uh, the work would continue on it until 64 A.D. At the time of Jesus' public ministry, uh, all of Israel had been watching the building progress of this magnificent temple for over 50 years. And yet by the time this temple is completed, it will only stand for six years before it will then be destroyed by, um, uh, by uh, the Roman uh, armies. Now, uh, when they give Jesus some pause here, you're talking about the desolation of this temple. Reconsider the temple. Think about what you're saying, what would have to happen to this temple for it to be left desolate. And uh, so they give him a chance to kind of uh, back off, and far from backtracking from his prophecy, you notice in verse 2, Jesus goes even further, and he said to them, do you not see all these things, all these things you're showing me, the magnificence of the temple? Verily, verily, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus not only does not recant His earlier prophecy, but He, and not only does He double down on the previous prophecy, He goes even further declaring a destruction of the temple that will be so complete that not one stone will ultimately be left upon, uh, one upon another in that event. Now, what you need to understand, we need to understand, maybe I just need to, I have a gift for stating the obvious, but to realize how very specific and important this prophecy is. Jesus is not saying that the temple will be captured by a foreign nation or that the Roman Empire will end and a foreign people will take over Jerusalem and then they will give the temple a different use or that it will be partially toppled in some kind of a war. He is describing a complete dismantling of Herod's temple to such a degree that not one stone will be left upon another. And this 
to the disciples, it just seemed inconceivable to them. They're looking at this. It just seemed like anyone that would take over Jerusalem, it, it, the worst they would do is put it to another use or partially damage it, restore it then, and put it to another use. But for it to be completely destroyed, it seemed impossible to them. And yet that's exactly what happened in 70 A.D., less than 40 years after Jesus' prophecy here in 66 A.D., after enduring a very long series of provocations and, and religious insensitivities by Rome and Roman's governors uh, in Israel, the Jews revolted against the Roman Empire. And they did enjoy some very early success against Rome. Uh, because Rome was underarmed and undermanned uh, in that uh, province of the Roman Empire. But they geared up in order to put down this uh, Jewish rebellion against Roman authority, and ultimately they sent 60,000 very heavily armed and very, very seasoned uh, troops to begin the invasion of Israel from the north in the Galilee, and ultimately on their campaign through the Galilee alone, they killed over 100,000 uh, Jews. You fast forward from six, uh, 66 A.D. to 70 A.D., and the Jewish rebellion has now uh, been largely put down, and it's concentrated now in its final resistance in the city of Jerusalem and specifically in the 13 acres that made up the area of, uh, of the temple. A Roman general by the name of Titus, he was brought in to put down this uh, revolt of the Jews. He arrives to lay siege to Jerusalem with the 12th and the 5th and the 10th Roman legions. And to know anything about those legions, these were very, very battle-hardened, experienced Roman legions. Rome threw their best at this uh, rebellion of, uh, of the Jews, and they were going to make an example out of them. And so Titus, with these legions, led an assault on a final assault on Jerusalem. The battles that ensued there, they were very long, very bloody. The Jews were very, very good at guerrilla warfare, leaving the confines of the area of the temple in Jerusalem at large at night and going out and inflicting severe kind of slash wounds against uh, the Roman army. And it really, uh, this guerrilla warfare really took its toll upon the Romans. Many, many were killed. And uh, its effect upon the Roman soldiers, this long kind of grueling, bloody, uh, discouraging warfare with many of their friends dying, that by the time they broke through the walls of Jerusalem, uh, they didn't want to just defeat the Jews. Uh, they wanted vengeance, and they wanted Jewish blood for what they had done uh, to their comrades. And when it became apparent that uh, victory was inevitable for the Jews, uh, the Roman general Titus, commendable man in his own way, here in charge of retaking Jerusalem, he pleaded with the Jews. He pleaded with them to surrender in the face of such overwhelming odds or to at least come out into the open and fight with the Roman soldiers. He did not want to defile the Jewish temple. He did not want to do anything against uh, that temple. And so his offer was made to the Jews. They refused it. 
And uh, ultimately, when the Roman armies broke through uh, into the area of the temple, the Jews fled into the temple uh, itself. And uh, a, despite the orders of, of Titus not to destroy the temple, a Roman soldier threw a torch into the temple, and all of the fabrics that were in there and the wood that was in there, all of it was set ablaze, and the fire uh, exploded literally inside of the temple and basically cremated everyone that was on the inside. The Jewish losses alone, not to count Roman losses, in this siege of Jerusalem and the temple area were over one million Jews were killed in the siege in 70 A.D., when that fire built, burnt the temple, there's an awful lot of gold associated in the construction of that temple, and the gold in the heat of the fire melted down into the cracks between uh, the stones that constituted the building. And of course, in the ancient world, part of the wages of a Roman soldier were the spoils of the enemies that they defeated. And so in order to get at the gold, uh, and then plus, I think, just out of a pure rage against the Jews at this point. They wanted to destroy any symbol that the Jews could ever unite around uh, ever again. Uh, they took and they toppled every single stone uh, off of the other to get to the gold, and so it happened exactly as Jesus had said it would, not one stone left upon another. And one of the interesting things that we do when we have had the privilege of uh, leading a tour, uh, a Bible tour of the land of Israel, is to stand on the Mount of Olives on the eastern side of the Temple Mount, separated by the Kidron Valley, and then to look out over onto that Temple Mount and to this day to view the fulfillment of this prophecy. There is no temple standing on the Temple Mount and it is a testimony, still a witness to the veracity, the truthfulness, the accuracy of the prophecy that Jesus gave here. And one of the things that it does when you look, and you can go online and look at it, but the absence of a temple, uh, even two stones on top of one another from the old temple on that temple mount, what it communicates to us is that just as surely as that prophecy was fulfilled concerning the temple in 70 A.D., so too everything else that Jesus prophesies in this Olivet Discourse is going to occur. No matter how many people read it, whether Christian or non-Christian, and say, that's inconceivable, that could never happen. Paris could never be overthrown. New York could never be overthrown. Uh, you know, whatever other city, Moscow could never be overthrown in this way. The world itself could never be overthrown and destroyed in the way that's described here in the Olivet Discourse and in the book of Revelation. And yet, Jesus takes and gives them one prophecy that was fulfilled in the lifetime of some of them and to make them realize as surely as that has happened, Everything else is going to happen that we are about uh, to read uh, here. And then 
Notice in verse 3, as Jesus then sat on the Mount of Olives, they crossed the Kidron Valley that separates the Mount of Olives from the Temple Mount to this day in Jerusalem. They make that crossing over, and then Jesus sat on that Mount of Olives. And when he sits, what he's doing is he is taking the position of a teacher, and they recognize that. Jesus has something to say to us here. And uh, in those days, the, the teacher sat and the students stood. And so he sat. He knows what's on the mind of the disciples. And the disciples came to him privately, and they said to him, in the light of him doubling down on what he had said about the temple, he said, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So, as they're making their way from the area of the temple across the walk over to the Mount of Olives, this prophecy of Jesus is churning around in their hearts and in their minds. And they're trying to work it over. They're trying to get their heads uh, around it. And so while they're still chewing on this astonishing prophecy of Jesus in verse 2, they then pose two questions to uh, Jesus in verse 3. Number one, when will these things be? That is the destruction of the temple that he was declaring. And then further, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? It appears here that while they're thinking about all of this, the destruction of the temple, in their minds the destruction of the temple could only occur as a result of some kind of monumental uh, world-ending event. In other words, something like the second coming of Jesus or the end of the current uh, age and uh, giving away to the millennial uh, kingdom. They're thinking, well, if this is going to happen, then what are going to be the signs of this? And and, uh, and, and the sign of your coming, the end of the age, because only something that, uh, you know, dramatic or, or catasclis- uh, you know, the word could be uh, uh, producing something uh, like that. And Jesus then proceeded to answer their three questions here, really two questions, but one is a single one, the other two are bound up together. He answers them, is recorded here, but also as is recorded in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel. And together, all three of them, we have the complete account of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus' response, and we get a little technical here, but some people in the room are technical on this issue. That's the depth with which they're uh, kind of in their walk with the Lord and examining these kind of things. Jesus' response to question number one Uh, What will tell us when will these things be, speaking of the destruction of the temple? Jesus' response to that is recorded in Luke's gospel, Uh, again, dealing with the physical destruction of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. In reading the prophecy that Jesus gives us here uh, of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, when you read it from all three gospels, it's clear that the coming destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. is a type. It is a shadow of the destruction that is going to come upon the whole earth during the Great Tribulation. And so the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. by the Romans, it cannot be the fulfillment of much of what Jesus speaks here in his uh, prophecy in the Olivet Discourse. And the only thing that we know that 
uh, matches what he teaches here uh, in the description at the end of the age, is the description of the end of the age as this is recorded in Daniel and Revelation and elsewhere in the Bible. What Matthew's gospel does here is Matthew's gospel uh, focuses on Jesus' response to the final two of the three questions. He focuses here on the events that will immediately precede Jesus' second coming and the end of the age that will then give way to uh, the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so what Jesus now describes here is what we commonly refer to as the seven-year tribulation period, when God pours out His judgment on a world that is in complete rebellion to Him and His offer of salvation uh, to it through His Son. And so we have a description of the tribulation uh, period. Now, the marks, as, as Jesus begins in verse 4, He begins by describing the marks of the world, the things that will characterize the world as the tribulation period approaches. And as the tribulation period approaches, so does the rapture of the church. And He begins the list. Uh, of those signs in verse 4. And Jesus said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will deceive many. And so Jesus is saying at the end of the age, it's going to be marked by very, very broad, widespread spiritual deception in the world. Because the closer we get to the end of the age, the more uh, the world is going to unravel, the more desperate people are going to become, and the more willing they're going to be to kind of glom on to anyone who even claims to have an answer or a hope in the face of, of what it is that is uh, unfolding. And so more in, in times where there's that kind of uncertainty and all, people are much more uh, likely to turn to false teachers and false Christs and be deceived. It's interesting, most often when we think about these signs, we think about wars and rumors of wars and famine and disease and earthquakes and so forth as, as the list continues. But Jesus begins here with a warning concerning spiritual deception. Why? Because as bad as all of the other things are, the consequences of them are merely temporal. To be spiritually deceived has eternal consequences. And so he considers uh, the, great, the gravest danger of the things that are going to characterize the world in the last uh, age before the tribulation period begins will be this spiritual deception. Again, because the consequences of being spiritually deceived are eternal. The other things are uh, not. And so <clears throat> that spiritual deception is to be feared more than everything else. He declares in verse 4, <clears throat> 6 rather, as he goes on, and he said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Uh, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And see that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And so the world will be filled with wars and rumors of wars, wars that, uh, you know, that haven't yet happened, but uh, that they, they seem as if they're going to unfold. That's the world that we live in. I mean, the whole world is armed to the teeth. It's as unstable as ever. It's an interesting thing. It does seem to me it, it's a… Oh, I'm not going to go… Uh, I'm not going there. Okay. Maybe I will. Hold on a second. No, nope, not going to do it. Not going to do it. And uh, 
So anyway, but it's the world, that, <clears throat> the world that we live in here. And he goes on and he continues to talk about not only wars and rumors of wars, but in verse 7, nation will rise against nation and kingdom will rise against kingdom. And so not only will you have actual wars where nations are actively uh, fighting another nation, our world is full of this kind of thing, but then Jesus says there are going to be factions within nations fighting one another, talking about civil war. Look at how many civil wars are going on in the world today where either kind of geopolitical boundaries have been placed or borders have been placed upon nations and now uh, tribes or peoples within those nations are now fighting against one another to carve out their own piece of land and so forth. And we see this all uh, over the world. Not only nations, but uh, if a nation isn't fighting another nation, it's fighting a war within its own uh, borders. And so uh, here we have the Taliban and the uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, even away from the Islamic side of things. You've got uh, drug cartels and these kind of things fighting uh, within the borders of a country and, and bringing this kind of kingdom against kingdom uh, into, a, uh, into the mix. I remember reading an uh, article in the Atlantic Monthly, and this has been a long, long time ago. It's dated to 1994. But this guy's not a Christian, <clears throat> and I remember reading it at the time, and I clipped it out. It's in my office to this day, a guy by the name of Robert Kaplan, and he wrote an article called The Coming Anarchy. And here's what he wrote. He said, a large number of people on this planet to whom the comfort and stability of a middle-class life is utterly unknown find war in a barracks existence a step up rather than a step down. Uh, one expert on these things stated that the future of the world is going to be characterized by, I quote, warrior societies operating at a time of unprecedented resource scarcity and planetary overcrowding. I don't know about the latter part of that, but these, there is great truth in the fact that the world has become a warrior society. Uh, somebody else wrote, <clears throat> henceforth the map of the world will never be static. This future map, in a sense, the last map, will be an ever-mutating representation of chaos. Again, this is Robert Kaplan in 1994, and if he doesn't know that he's a prophet, he ought to know that he is a prophet. Um, it's astonishing how ahead of the curve he was in, in, uh, in his understanding of things. And so Jesus said, in the last days, the world geopolitically is going to become extraordinarily fragile and is going to become extraordinarily uh, 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 one of instability, and it is the world that we live in today. He goes on and talks about the fact that there will be famines, a shortage of food, uh, pestilence, uh, diseases will be occurring. Uh, it's interesting to read about Zika now, isn't it, and what it might do to the tourist trade or whatever in Miami. Uh, you know, it's funny how in America the headlines are about what's going to happen to the flow of money, you know, rather than the people and all. But you think about the new diseases that are uh, popping up on a regular basis. You've got uh, HIV, Ebola, 
and uh, our ability just uh, barely in the last few outbreaks breaks that have occurred in Western Africa recently uh, to contain it within those nations, taking the resources of the world uh, in order to do so. And West Nile virus, uh, again, Zika, these things, you've got new ones surfacing all of the time, and then you've got the old ones resurfacing, uh, tuberculosis, malaria, influenza. You just go online if, you want to, if you're feeling too perky, uh, a little manic or something, and you want to come down. Uh, just read about some of these old diseases that are now resurfacing, measles, smallpox, and many of them now becoming drug-resistant uh, in terms of TB and MRSA, sexually transmitted diseases that are now becoming oblivious to whatever antibiotics that we might have. I was reading uh, a report uh, from this very year, 2016, where the United Nations declared that the world uh, is woefully ill-prepared for a pandemic of any kind anywhere in the world uh, in terms of drug shortages. Uh, articles like what I'm going to read you a little, couple of sentences from are now common in the news. Every month you'll see them uh, in the news if you uh, just uh, you know, have an eye for it. Here's from the New York Times, January 29, 2016. And uh, the article goes, in recent years, shortages of all, all sorts of drugs, anesthetics, painkillers, antibiotics, cancer treatments have become the new normal in American medicine. What about the rest of the world? The American Society of Health System Pharmacists uh, currently lists inadequate supplies of more than 150 drugs and therapeutics for reasons ranging from manufacturing problems to public or federal safety crackdowns to drug makers abandoning low-profit uh, products. And so the, these things that are uh, characterized as, char uh, you know, characterizing the world as this tribulation period uh, is approaching here all around us. Earthquakes, uh, uh, verse 7, in various places. You can go online and look all of that up, the amount of earthquakes, where they're happening, out in the Atlantic. And I guess misery loves company. You know, I hear about an earthquake in the Atlantic, and I think, all right, yeah, you got a taste of what it's like to be out here on the Pacific Rim. I don't really do that, not quite like that. Um, but there is the realization that, wow, an earthquake in Indiana? Come on! A six-point what in Oklahoma? Are you kidding me? You know, and so this kind of stuff, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And essentially, Jesus is telling us that as the rapture of the church and the following tribulation period nears, things are going to get worse and worse. They're going to begin to seriously unravel on every level in the world. Now, aren't you glad you came to the Bible study here uh, tonight? And that it's going to uh, fragment and it's going to destabilize spiritually and uh, politically and material and physically, and it's going to do so in a very scary way. And it seems to be doing that increasingly in our day. And yet, interestingly, and some of you might have noticed how I just read over it and didn't uh, settle on to it, was the idea that I would come back to it. I want you to notice in, uh, in uh, the middle of all that he uh, speaks here, Jesus says a curious thing to us as his disciples in verse 6. He said, see that you're not troubled. Oh, yeah, thanks a lot. Oh, yeah, that's very helpful. You lay all of that out to us, and how are we not supposed to be troubled? And the Greek word for troubled there 
could equally be translated alarmed or disturbed or startled or terrified. Well, all of that raises then to me the question, and that is how in the world can a person live in a world like Jesus is describing here and not be troubled? And the answer to that Jesus gives us in the very next verse, verse 8, when he declares that all of these are the beginning of sorrows, the beginning of sorrows. So Jesus likens all of these things that are going on here to birth pangs, as it's recorded in one translation. In the New King James that I have, it's called the beginning of sorrows. But in the Greek language, original language of the New Testament, that beginning of sorrows, it means literally the beginning of birth pangs, labor pain, the pain that accompanies childbirth. Now, what in the world are birth pangs? Uh, women, most of you know the answer to that question. But for the men that are in the room, uh, we call these things contractions. And when a woman gives birth to a baby, there are two great things about the contractions that she experiences. Number one, they will become more frequent the longer that the labor goes on, and they will become more and more intense as the labor goes on. So it begins something like this. A husband and wife are doing something in the backyard on a Saturday, and then the wife turns and says, I think I felt something. I think that could have been a contraction, but I'm not sure. Let's wait and see. And several hours later, that same woman is, ah! <laughs> Don't tell me to not push! I'm going to push! So it begins in one stage, and then it ends in something altogether different. And in liking these events in the world to birth pangs or to contractions. Jesus isn't saying that these things have never happened before. Sometimes you'll see people and they'll just poo-poo all of this, and they just say, well, this has always happened all the way through human history, these famines and diseases and so forth. That's not what Jesus is saying here when he likens it to birth pangs. He's fully aware that these things have happened all through human history since the fall of, of Adam and Eve. He's not saying that they haven't always happened, but he's saying that as the end draws near, they're going to occur with a greater frequency and with greater intensity until there's no space between the contractions, and it seems like one problem is bleeding into the other until there's no time to adequately triage the one problem that's happening in the world before the next bleeding starts and the next crisis and the next crisis, and that's the world that you and I live in today. It is one problem after another after another. All of it starts overlapping, and Jesus says that will be the case. Now, it would be a very, very cool thing, I think, if women went through birth pangs or contractions and uh, they got like a trophy at the end of it or something, and, uh, or if they just went through it for the sake of having uh, birth pangs, but they don't uh, have these birth pangs for the sake of having birth pangs. At the end of the birth pangs, something wonderful happens. Something miraculous happens. A baby is born. Something new is born. And it's the joy of the birth of that child that makes all of the birth pangs worth it. And what Jesus is saying, so it is concerning the kingdom of God. 
that all of these birth pangs that he's describing here in Matthew chapter 24, they're one day going to give birth to Jesus' second coming and the kingdom age that will follow it. And so, since this world is going to fall into this condition, as Jesus describes it here, we will either find ourselves all knotted up in anxiety over the birth pangs, or we will ask the Holy Spirit to help us to view them with the realization that all of this is necessary as a part of God's plan to ultimately give birth to the kingdom of God in the form of the millennial kingdom in human history, just the way that Jesus said would be the case. Now, in verse 9, uh, Jesus begins to speak about the things that will uh, characterize the first three and a half years of the seven-year uh, tribulation period, and He does through verses uh, 9 through 14. So, because these things are called the beginning of, of sorrows here in verse 8, uh, the beginning of verse uh, 9 begins with the word then. Now, after this season of the beginning uh, of sorrows, something new and different from the birth pangs is occurring, and, and what follows here now is a description of the tribulation uh, itself. I think the, the, it helps to understand that Jesus is talking about the tribulation period here uh, in this next section of His Olivet Discourse by, uh, by virtue of the fact that all the way throughout this section, uh, in verses 9 through 20, we are completely on Jewish ground. We are not on Christian ground uh, at all. That is, Jesus is giving revelation here and instruction to the Jews who are in the world during the Great Tribulation. It is not instruction to us as Christians. And I'll give you a couple of examples. In verse 16, when Jesus talks about the abomination that causes desolation, He says that those, when that occurs, those who are living in Judea, that's the immediate region that surrounds Jerusalem, that they are not to go back to their house and collect up any belongings. They are to flee to the mountains. And so, Judea is talking about the area of the Jews on planet earth. In verse 17, He speaks of Him who is on the housetop. Well, we don't live on our housetops in California, but in that Mediterranean climate of Israel, they use their housetops as another room to the house. It's talking about that part of the world. And I think significantly in uh, verse 20, Jesus speaks of, of praying that the abomination of desolation does not occur on the Sabbath day because it would then limit the distance that a Jew could flee on that particular uh, day or travel according to the law of Moses. And uh, G Jesus knew that Jews would need to fur flee further than a Sabbath day journey in order to escape the persecution of, of the Antichrist that He will launch against uh, the Jews. And I think that sometimes, uh, you know, someone might observe, well, it sure sounds like here in all of this that there are going to be Christians who will be alive and are going to be persecuted uh, during this time in the passage. And it is true. And the Bible teaches that many, many people will become Christians after the rapture of the church and uh, during the great tribulation period. And they're called in the Bible tribulation saints. Um, 
I know that you think about how many people just in terms of a connection with us in this room where we have shared the gospel with them. They have the knowledge either from background of their own in church or their relationship with another Christian that there is this thing called a rapture and the Christians are going to be taken up into the protection and the glory of heaven while a tribulation period occurs of God's judgment. And then when it happens, the light is going to go on and they're going to realize that this was true, put their faith in the Lord. And the Bible teaches that the number of tribulation saints, those who will be martyred for their faith during the tribulation period, will be the way that it's numbered in the book of Revelation. It's, it's like, you know, tens of millions times ten millions. You know, it's, it's an uncountable number. A huge number of people will come to Christ uh, during that uh, uh, period. I think additionally, after the abomination that causes desolation by the Antichrist, uh, this deception that he has pulled on the world and his abuse of power is going to cause the light to go on for an awful lot of people, and they're going to realize, especially the Jewish people, that who they thought was the Savior of the world, but Gentiles as well, is nothing other than uh, a monster. And uh, these things come out uh, in Revelation chapter 7 for a little bit more uh, in-depth if you want to look into it on your own. Now, I want to uh, here continue to lay a little bit of a foundation for what does come next, and I ask you to be patient with me on that. I do strongly believe that the Bible teaches uh, a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, that Christians are going to be removed prior to the judgment. I remember as a brand new Christian and walking with the Lord, I was got, got going with the Lord in a Calvary chapel, the teaching of of the church was pre-tribulation rapture. That's a position, doctrinal position of Calvary chapels. And I remember when I became a new pastor and then came over to Modesto, there was a guy in the church, nice guy named John, and he was a post-trib guy. And uh, so we had uh, many discussions, and he gave me a book that he, he said, well, this is the, the best thing that I know on the position of, of a post-trib position. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I've always just believed what I've been told here, and I'll, I'll allow the other position uh, to search me. And it was a book called The Blessed Hope by George Ladd. Well, it infuriated me because it produced such a straw man argument concerning the pre-tribulation rapture view, and I just wrote copious notes in there. John and I had some good discussions after related to that. But how a person interprets Matthew chapter 24 uh, depends upon how they view eschatology as a whole within the Bible. And, uh, and, and, uh, and the only thing that works for me is I look at Isaiah, as I look at Ezekiel, as I look at Revelation, as I look at Daniel, as I look at Matthew, the only thing where the pieces can come together without having to spiritualize uh, large sections of the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, the only thing that I can make sense of in an honest uh, looking into it for my own part as a person who feels very responsible for what I teach other people is a pre-tribulation rapture, and principally for three reasons, and that is, number one, that the New Testament teaches for us as Christians that we are not appointed to God's wrath. And the Bible teaches that repeatedly in the, great tri in the tribulation period is God's wrath. The whole tribulation period, all seven years, not just the final three and a half years. And that's to mid-tribbers that are in the room here uh, uh, tonight. So, and the second thing is 
that the rapture of the church, as I understand it, as Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that this is intended to be a comfort concerning Christians. And um, I do have a perverse sense of humor sometimes, or I should say a dry sense of humor, but I do fail to see how uh, going through the first half of the tribulation or all of the tribulation period as a Christian and everything that is found in it, it can somehow be a comfort to me. And uh, so I think the word of comfort is to be removed, and I don't see Christians being supernaturally protected during that period. I don't confuse the 144,000 with the church in, in my my understanding of the Scriptures. The other issue, uh, third, is imminence. To me, and that's the idea that the rapture could occur at any time, and only the pre-tribulation rapture allows us to look at the rapture, how it's described in the Scriptures as something that could happen at any time. With a mid-tribulation rapture view or a post-tribulation rapture view, it can't happen tonight because the abomination of desolation hasn't occurred. The Antichrist hasn't been revealed in the first seal that is broken to begin the tribulation uh, period. And uh, so, uh, so you, you lose the issue of uh, eminence. And so, if you hold a, uh, a post-trib or a mid-trib view, we can uh, agree to disagree agreeably on this. It's certainly not a litmus test for Christian uh, fellowship, and so just relax. Just relax. And just sing with me. Why can't we be friends? Why can't we be friends? Okay. Now, in verse 9, the word then, Jesus says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. So there'll be a, a tremendous persecution and martyrdom of tribulation saints uh, because of their uh, refusal uh, to uh, renounce their faith or to take the mark of the beast during the tribulation uh, period. And then uh, verse 11, he returns to the uh, worldwide spiritual deception as marking uh, that uh, early part of the tribulation period. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. We think about the Antichrist. He's formerly known in the Bible as the beast. We just call him Antichrist because that's what everyone talks about him as being. But his, his proper title in the Scriptures is the beast, and he has a false prophet. He has a right-hand man who is able to do incredible miracles of deception and, and so forth and really making a religion of the Antichrist during uh, the tribulation period. And so there will be this uh, worldwide deception and I think spiritual deception and I think a lot of it is going to uh, center around the Antichrist and his, uh, his false prophet, the miracles that they're able to do and so forth. And all of that is in Revelation chapter 13. He declares further that, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And so without a presence of the Holy Spirit during the tribulation period, you think things are bad now? You ain't seen nothing yet. Can you imagine what this world will become in one hour's time when the presence of the Holy Spirit through the body of Christ and the world is removed as a salt, as a 
retarding of corruption in the advancement of sin. it, it, It is going to become a jungle. It is going to become dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest, zero compassion. And so, it is the Holy Spirit's definition of law and order, of right and wrong, the presence of the Holy Spirit in this world, and then coupled with the institution of government and how God defines that, that keeps a lid on this whole thing that is called uh, planet Earth, and to keep it from becoming a jungle run by savages. And ultimately, that tipping point uh, does occur. I don't think it's any accident where every year now for the last eight or nine, ten years, uh, ammunition sales in the United States of America set a record every year. They cannot make ammunition fast enough for people to buy it. Gun sales are at a record level one year, and it gets topped the next year, and it gets topped the next year, and it gets topped the next year. And here you have people probably with no knowledge of the Bible at all, but they have this intuitive sense in terms of the direction that the world is going in, that the day is coming, they are not going to be able to trust government, they are not going to be able to trust their fellow man, that lawlessness could explode at any time and completely overwhelm the world's ability to contain it. And we see uh, the birth pangs of even that uh, uh, today. And then he goes on and he declares in verse 13, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And so those tribulation saints who endure to the end of the tribulation, they're going to be physically delivered from all of this trouble, all of this horror of the great tribulation period and all their persecution at the second coming uh, of Christ. Jesus goes on and he says, "And and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. We know from the book of Revelation that God is going to uh, supernaturally protect and anoint 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, 144,000 male virgin Jews uh, to be His witness and to be His uh, testimony in the world during the tribulation period. And then we also know uh, in Revelation chapter 14 that the everlasting gospel is going to be preached to the world. All of this junk is going on, and there are going to be angelic beings that are going to proclaim the gospel the way of salvation to the world uh, during all of this, uh, this happening, and so the world is going to be evangelized as Revelation reveals to us uh, during that time. Now in verse 15, we move into the second half of the tribulation period, uh, a minor kind of technical thing. When we talk about the tribulation period, if you're talking to people that are like get into this kind of stuff, the tribulation period refers to the full seven years. Uh, The great tribulation refers to the final three and a half years of the seven years, and that's what Jesus uh, heads into right now, and if uh, an in-depth look at the great tribulation is is provided for us in large part in uh, Revelation chapters uh, 6 through uh, 19. And Jesus warned and said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him 
understand. And uh, let's talk about that abomination of desolation. We talked about it on Sunday morning here recently, and you're saying to yourself, yes, we did. Please move on. But um, you know me better than that. So the, the, not everybody understands it. The abomination of desolation is this. When the Antichrist comes into power, he will become a world-ruling empire. He will come out of a revived Roman empire uh, in coming into power. He will become a friend of the Jews, and he will allow the Jews to rebuild their temple. They will rebuild their temple. The Jews today are very eager to rebuild their temple and reconstitute the Old Testament sacrifices, and he will allow them to do that. They will rebuild their temple, and then at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the midway point of the tribulation period, one day he will wake up and he will walk into the very holy of holies of that rebuilt temple. And the holy of holies represents the very presence of God. He will sit down in the holy of holies, and he will declare himself to be God, and he will demand that the whole world, Jew and Gentile, worship him as God. Whoa! Narcissism off the graph a little bit. But remember, the Antichrist isn't just possessed by a demon. He is possessed by the devil himself. He's an instrument of the devil. And when that occurs, the Jews will realize immediately, we have been fooled. This is not our Messiah. This is not our friend. We have been following someone who is crazy to follow. And so Jesus said, when you see this happen, and he is affirming the teaching of Daniel, this event is future, it's going to occur. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are now talking to Jews, who are going to be the most uh, immediately impacted by the abomination that causes desolation, then let those who are in Judea, as we mentioned earlier, flee to the mountains, Jews. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies and in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath day. Again, speaking to Jews during uh, that, uh, that period of time when the abomination of desolation occurs, that they are to run. And it isn't just the Jews that will have been deceived by the Antichrist. The entire Gentile world uh, will have been uh, 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 fooled by him as, uh, as well. And uh, Europe, certainly, the rest of the world for three and a half years until, uh, until he does uh, this. And Revelation chapter 17 goes into all of it. it. It is amazing to me, really horrifying as well, to watch the entire world being set up for all of this right before our eyes. And the world has become uh, more and more determined in its rejection of the Word of God and as it does so, there's the inevitable result is always the destabilization of the world. And as things get more and more desperate, then people get more and more desperate and willing to give tremendous power and authority to someone who even says they have a solution to the problems of the world, let alone having one. 
and the world is set up uh, to do this. They're going to do it and put all of their bets on the Antichrist, and then when this abomination of desolation occurs, uh, all of the wheels start to fall off at that point during the second half of the tribulation period. In verse 21, Jesus said, For then there shall be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And think about that. Here we are, we uh, uh, live in a time in human history where in the last century, two world wars were fought, and uh, close to 100 million people lost their lives in World War II say nothing of World War I, to say uh, nothing of what uh, Mao Zedong did to China and what the Khmer Rouge did to the Cambodians and what Stalin uh, did to the Russian people. We're talking about multiplied tens and hundreds of millions of people put to death. And Jesus said this period of time in human history uh, is going to be a greater tribulation than anything that the world has experienced until this it occurs, no nor ever shall be, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. In other words, if the Lord did not step in at His second coming, in all of this, that uh, man would become completely destroyed, destroy himself in the tribulation period, or ultimately be uh, destroyed by God. Now, when he talks about here in uh, verse 22, talks about the elect, uh, but for the elect's sake these days shall be shortened. That reference to elect causes some people to believe that this teaches that Christians are going to go through the tribulation, but this word elect is used continually through the Bible to refer to both Jews and uh, to uh, Christians. And so, uh, who it is referring to in the Bible depends upon the context. And uh, in this particular context, uh, it is Israel not referring to the church, uh, having given mention of Judea and the Sabbath, so forth, in the passage. Now, Jesus goes on to describe uh, His second coming in verse 23, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, don't believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he, that is the Messiah, is in the desert, don't bother taking a trip to the desert. It's not going to happen that way. Or look, he's in the inner rooms. He's hidden away somewhere in Brooklyn or in Denaire. Uh, do not believe it. It's a little bit of a contrast there, wasn't it? It's the two cities that came to mind. What can I say? He said, this is what it's going to be like. It's not going to be some hidden thing. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. It will not be a secret at His second coming. Far different from His first coming, where He did come quietly, as the uh, Scriptures prophesied that He would be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, so forth. His second coming, completely different. It won't be hidden at all. It'll be apparent uh, 
to everyone. And Jesus said, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered uh, also. And so just as uh, vultures gather to uh, eat or to judge, so to speak, a rotting physical corpse, so too Jesus at His second coming, He will judge the moral and spiritual corruption of the world at that uh, time. Immediately after uh, the tribulation uh, of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. A lot about this in, in Revelation. A lot of things happening in, in the heavenlies associated with all of this. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. Uh, at His second coming, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Not Greg Laurie, but Greg will be there but He's going to be coming with power and great glory. It's an old joke among Calvary Chapel pastors. Thank you for humoring me uh, related uh, to it. And He will send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So it's going to be this very, very uh, awesome event. It's going to be accompanied by a great mourning on the part of the tribes of the people, and uh, the populations of the world at His second coming, probably because uh, many of them will realize at the second coming these are people that have lived through the tribulation period but are still followers of the Antichrist, that their judgment is near. I think uh, for uh, the Jews, when Jesus comes at His second coming, there will be that tremendous sorrow over the price that they have paid and the hurt that they have done to God's heart by failing to recognize Jesus at His first coming and uh, requiring all of this for them uh, to turn, and, and their sorrow at being uh, deceived by the Antichrist. And all of this is prophesied in Zechariah chapter 12, and Zechariah writes, in the name of the Lord, God speaking, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. And in that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem. And so that light will finally go on uh, for the Jewish people. There will be that sorrow after his return, as we see in verse 31. He sends his angel through the earth in order to gather out the elect. He'll gather together to himself those who trusted in Jesus as their Savior during the tribulation period. They've survived the horror of uh, the great tribulation. They will be separated from everyone else. They will then move into the thousand-year uh, reign of Christ, but this great separation will occur uh, at, at the time of the second coming as well. And we will stop there uh, this evening because I'm out of time. As surely as there is no temple, no Jewish temple, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem this evening, as surely as that prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled in 70 A.D., that is how sure every single thing 
that Jesus has spoken in this section of the Olivet Discourse is going to come to pass. It seemed inconceivable even to the disciples that the temple could be dismantled to that thoroughness of a degree. And sometimes it can even seem inconceivable to a Christian that all of this is one day going to come to pass, but it will come to pass. And Jesus doesn't ask for us here now reading the Olivet Discourse 2,000 years later to take it completely upon some kind of blind faith, though God's Word is not blind faith. We have the luxury of already having seen the fulfillment of the early prophecy and the instruction that it gives to us concerning the fulfillment of everything else that he has spoken of here uh, in the passage. And so, the important thing is we see these things come to pass in a greater measure as the tribulation period approaches. Of course, we're going to look at it, and the temptation for us is going to become anxious. But Jesus tells us history in advance so that when it occurs, we will not become anxious because He knows our propensity uh, toward that. And so the importance of looking at the events that are going on in the world today that are moving forward in this entire uh, scenario to realize that the world is not out of control. It, history is His story. It is God's story and that it will have the end that He wants it to have. And the ending is a happy one. In the same way, there's a happy ending to birth pangs, there's a happy ending to these birth pangs as well. The beautiful, peerless, perfect kingdom of God birthed in the kingdom age for a thousand years, and then ultimately that even one day giving way to a new heaven and a new earth. I do like happy endings, and so I leave you with a happy ending. Let's stand together and we'll pray.